you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Come on! Uh, Get in there, Maverick! It's no good. Cornelius and I have been indicted for heresy. It is evil. It is so evil. It is a bad, bad plan. All right, let's see. I've got my notes. I've got my water. I've got children outside the door making all sorts of noise. This is going to be interesting, and that could be good, that could be bad, that could be any number of things, but either way, the one thing we know for certain that it will be and that it is, it is another deep dive into the world of the dun-dun-dun, the heretics. (laughs) Now, today I come to you to tell you that you must always understand the why of righteousness. Why in tarnation would I tell you that? Because of a little group in church history known as the Ebionites. And you're like, okay, what's an Ebionite? You know, I am so glad you ask these questions because they make my life so much simpler when you ask these questions like, hey, dude, what's an Ebionite? I, I, I got to know. You have to tell me. <laughs> I also have to adjust sound as we go, so bear with me as we move along. Now, the Ebionites. This is this is fun because, as with everything in church history, what we've got is, you know, we think we kind of, sort of, maybe know where they came from, and then sometimes we just have no earthly idea. So the Ebionites begin with either one of two things: they either come from a dude named Ebion, who we have no idea anything about, or they come from the Hebrew word meaning poor. Those are your options now. How those two things exactly go together, I have no earthly idea. I just know those are your two options, and that's all we've got. Now, what do we know about them? We actually know quite a bit. The reason we know quite a bit is because everyone, and when I say everyone, we'll cover this in a minute. I mean, everyone condemned these guys as heretics. So, did they have any sacred writings? Did they have any books that they followed? Yes, yes, they did. They followed first of all the Tanakh, the what we would call the Old Testament, the uh, the the, tr- the uh, threefold division of the Old Testament: the Torah, the Ketuvim, and the Nevi'im. So the Law, the Writings, and the Prophets. They also held to a book known as the Gospel of the Hebrews. Now, the fun thing about this is we don't actually know if this is its own book or if it is a truncated or shortened version of the Gospel of Matthew. Either way, if it is a portion of the Gospel of Matthew, this would make sense, seeing how the Gospel of Matthew is the Gospel written to the the Hebrew people, so to speak. You've got to remember, when we're dealing with Gospels, audience matters. These guys weren't just writing a book be like, hey, I got an idea. Let's write a Gospel and do something fun. No, they were actually writing to an audience. Uh, Mark, chronicling the sermons of Peter, is writing to the Roman world to present Jesus as a Savior and as the ideal of humanity, which he was. Luke, following around Paul and interviewing people, is writing a gospel to encourage the brethren, especially Gentile brethren, knowing that Jesus is the Savior of not just the Jew, but also the Gentile. John is writing at the end of the first century so that you would believe he's writing to a post-apostolic world. Matthew, which I still contend is the first written gospel, is writing to a predominantly Jewish 
congregation, a predominantly Jewish world, trying to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Christ of the Old Testament. So it makes sense if you're an Ebionite that you would hold to that. Why? Because of the beliefs of the, of the Ebionites. They are the... Hmm, they're the heirs of the Judaizing controversy. They practiced circumcision. They followed the dietary laws of the Old Testament. They believed in the ritual observation of Old Testament laws. Catch this, for justification. We'll come back to that in a minute. They also rejected the virgin birth. They rejected the divinity of Jesus. And they explained the miraculous workings of Jesus through one of two uh, philosophical hoops that they would jump through, either separationism or adoptionism, which we kind of explain as we go through all this. So either way, what they fully believed was in order to be a Christian, you first had to be Jewish. And really, in order to be a Christian, you had to be Jewish. Now, why do we call them heretics? Well, we mentioned a second ago, everybody called them heretics. And by everyone, I mean literally everyone. Polycarp, Ignatius, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Hippolytus, Tertullian, Origen, Origen and Epiphanius. So this is, this is like a who's who roll call of the first really two centuries of Christian apologetics, talking about the one to three hundreds and beyond even. Why is this condemned? Well, catch this. this. Based on my description of their beliefs, it should be fairly simple to understand why it was condemned, but let's put it into a historical and biblical framework. So let's, let's start with Hippolytus. This is, this is our man. Again, his book, The Refutation of All Heresies, which I contend, that's an ambitious undertaking, but he writes this. The Ebeneans, however, acknowledge that the world was made by him who is in reality God. But they propound legends concerning the Christ, similarly with Serinthus and Carpocrates. They live conformably to the customs of the Jews, alleging that they are justified according to the law, and saying that Jesus was justified by fulfilling the law. Therefore, it was according to the Ebeneans that the Savior was named the Christ of God and Jesus, since not one of the rest of mankind had observed completely the law. For if even any other had fulfilled the commandments contained in the law, he would have been that Christ. And the Ebeneans allege that they themselves also, when in like manner fulfill the law, are able to become Christs. For they assert that our Lord himself was a man in all like sense with all the rest of the human family. That's a problem. That's heretical. Why? Let's make sure we catch this on two separate fronts because they matter. The first front is the one that just immediately screams at you. It's the lack of justification, but that's grounded in an understanding of who Christ is, and we'll come back to the idea when we get to the, uh, the correction. This is defined as heretical because it is a violation of the gospel message. Remember, we have one message of salvation in Scripture. We do not have 17. We do not even have two. You'll hear this a lot. Well, we have the Old Testament salvation, which was a, fa a works system, and we have a New Testament salvation, which is a faith system. No, you don't. If you have anywhere in Scripture that I will ascend a little bit to a work system, it is only Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Adam and Eve have a covenant of works with God, wherein they keep the command, tend to the garden, and God continues the blessing. They failed. They were the last humans with a free will. They, they were it. 
They were everyone else since then is fallen, born into bondage and sin. It is only by faith in the saving work of God, past tense for us, future tense for those of the Old Testament, that any are saved. So you see the salvation at work in the life of Abraham. You see it in the calling and setting aside of Joseph. You see it in the choosing of Isaac in the rejection of Ishmael, who is actually the firstborn of Abraham. You see it in the choosing of Jacob over Esau. What do you have? You have the gracious, sovereign choice of God and the reaction of faith of the people who believe. You see this in David, who was not a nice guy, who was not a good guy. You see this in Solomon. You see this throughout Scripture. You see this in the prophets. Take Elijah, who's the, the you know, the prophet, if anybody knows one, they know Elijah. Elijah failed. He didn't trust completely. He didn't succeed always in his work. He was afraid of Jezebel. He was in hiding. That's not the means for his salvation. It is not his moral perfection. It is God's saving character. So we, we get that. That one jumps off the page at us. But let's not forget that that saving character is grounded in who God is and who our Savior is. We can't and do not keep the law. Hence the reason, excuse me, one salvation throughout Scripture. This does not change, it cannot change, and it will not change. So in order to do anything else, you are introducing another gospel. I think, you know, there's a Bible verse about that. Galatians 1, maybe. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed, anathema. He is to be damned. And we have, as we have said before, so again, I I say now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. There is one, count them, one way of salvation. The Ebionites are heretics, first and foremost, because they introduce a second way of salvation. They think there is another means by which they may be saved. That is wrong. That is heresy. Always has been. Always will be. Secondly, though, this rejection of Christ. Now, in order to have this one way of salvation, we have to have this one Savior. The theology that is at work for the Ebionites, I mentioned it a second ago, separatism or adoptionism. So, in a nutshell, Jesus is an actual man, fully man, no virgin birth, no divinity. He is the natural offspring of Joseph and Mary. He is a dude. So, you're asking... Where do the miracles come from? Where do the teachings come from? Where does this um, God-like ability, if you want to put it in air quotes, come from? And the answer is in one of those two st uh, statements. The first one is separationism or separationist theology. In a nutshell, what this is is Jesus is a guy who at some point is indwelt with the divine spirit of the Christ. Typically, that is done at the baptism of John. That's where you see the Holy Spirit being described as descending. That is the divine Christ indwelling the body of Jesus. That empowers the miracles. That empowers the teaching. Basically elevates Jesus to the status of prophet. Now, at some point before, 
before the crucifixion, that divine Christ spirit leaves the man Jesus. Typically, this would have been at the Garden of Gethsemane, which is why you see really no miraculous work or great prophetic teaching from Jesus after those points. At that point, he's just a dude in this theology. That enables Jesus to be the prophet, the quote-unquote Messiah, and the keeper of the commandments because he was given that right. He was given that Christ spirit because he kept the commandments. So that's one. The second is an adoptionism idea or an adoptionist idea. This one says that because of his piety, because of his righteousness, this is what we got out of the, uh, the Hippolytus quote, because of that goodness inherent in Jesus and his keeping of the law, the Holy Spirit adopts him as the Christ. And that, uh, that seals him as that perfect man, that redeemed person. See, that could have happened to anyone. It happened to Jesus because he kept the law. He kept the commandments. If anybody else did, they would have been adopted and made a Christ as well. And if anyone else does, they would be adopted and kept to Christ as well. This is almost akin to Pelagian theology, which you'll see in church history. We'll get to Pelagius at some point um, when you get down to the 4th, 5th century, but not, not quite, but it, it, it kind of butts up against that. Now, this is heretical. This is not the Jesus of John 1, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1, uh, that would be a John 1, 1 through 3, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, Colossians 1, 15 through 18, talking about the unity of God, the unity of Christ, the oneness of the two. This would also be in violation of things like John 10, 31, where Jesus clearly claims that he and the Father are one. This would be in violation of what Jesus taught throughout his earthly ministry, clearly seen, if you'd like, in the Gospel of John. Preaching through the Gospel of John through um, through most of 2019, this was one of the things I kept pointing out that, you know, John 1, what is John doing? He is reminding you from the beginning that Jesus and God are one, and then he's proving it by demonstrating what Jesus is doing, the knowledge that he has, the work that he does. You get to John 2, you have the same thing. Jesus is claiming identity with the Father because he is demonstrating the power of God and the miraculous teaching knowledge and wisdom of God in the human form. You get to John 3 with Nicodemus. What do you have? Jesus claiming to be the fulfillment of all the promises of God. He is the fulfillment. He is the Messiah. He is God. You have this throughout Scripture, especially in John, though, where every time you turn around, the point of John is that Jesus is the Christ. He is God. He is one with the Father. He is the essence and the not manifestation, we don't use that word, and the demonstration of God in human, human form. And therefore, you can trust him because you can trust God. It proves the work. Every chapter is a proof by John that Jesus is God, that he and the Father are one, and that the work that Jesus does is approved by God. Now, this matters when we deal with something like the Ebionites, because your temptation is going to be when you run across this heresy, and you're, and you're going to run across this in the modern world. Humanity, just we just we just can't help ourselves. We we love the shiny object even when it's not really shiny and new. We just we just like it and think it's fun. So we we deal with it and follow it along, and you know, and kind of go from there. But your temptation is going to be to do what most evangelical Christians would do. It's going to be to dive right into the works thing. And, and you should. I mean, you should. But you should do that in light of dealing with the primary foundational issue, which is who is God. 
And that's our starting point. A beautiful, and I've mentioned the John, the Hebrews, the Colossians, John 10. But here's one that you should remember and put in your back pocket. Luke 18. And you're going, Luke 18? How, where, 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 Jesus is God in Luke 18? Yes, yes, he is, and it's clear. Uh, a ruler questioned him, the hymn is Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the man said, All these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, The one thing you still lack, sell all your possessions, get and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and you come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And you're going, that, that, that seems like it's refuting the works righteousness because the man wasn't good. But it's also pointing to Jesus as God because who is good? The man starts out with what? Good teacher. Jesus is like, whoa, slow your roll, chief. Who's good? God's good. So I can't be teacher if I'm good. If you're recognizing that I am innately and inherently good, then what you're recognizing is that I am divine. I am God. This is why Christians can be declared good, because it is no longer our nature that is at work, because our nature has fallen. It is the Holy Spirit who has redeemed us and transformed us and is transforming and will transform us into godliness. We are not good. God is good because God in Christ has redeemed us by dying on our behalf. This is the understanding of Christian theology, and this is the switch from who we are to who God is. That's foundational for understanding the problems here. Get God wrong, and you get everything else wrong with it. This is why I said you must understand the why of righteousness. Your starting point is that we have a good, holy, righteous God, and we have a fallen, broken humanity. We cannot cross that bridge. The why of our righteousness is not because we have kept his laws. It is because he is indwelling us, and he is empowering us, and he is good. So that now gets us to the second point. Well, God gives me this law. Can it save me? The answer is, well, of course it can't. And this is just one of those duh moments of Scripture because it was never intended to. Uh, Galatians 3. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Paul's quoting back to Genesis 15 and to Genesis 12 to say what? It's not the law that saved Abraham. It's faith that saved Abraham. It's not the law that saves you. It's faith that saves you. I mean, this was part of Peter's speech in that Jerusalem council that we mentioned. The apostles and elders came together to look into this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us also. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Keep in mind why this is important. The Gentiles aren't keeping the law. The Gentiles aren't following the commandments. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they also are. So what's the conclusion? The bare minimum of the law. Abstain from blood and things sacrificed to idols and, and sexual immorality. In other words, the spirit, the core of the law. Honor God, 
trust him, follow him, and treat others as you would in a godly manner. This is literally the Ten Commandments put into action. You'll see the same declarations in Romans 4 that Paul reminds that Abraham is justified when? Before the law, before the sign of the covenant, when God was the one who was working. So the question then becomes the thing, well, the next question is the one that evangelicals get wrong. So the law is no good and we throw it out, right? To which we go, oh, guys, come on. There's like literally Bible verses. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Romans 7. May it never be. On the contrary, I would, not have to come, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. In other words, was I not coveting before the law said, don't covet? No, of course I was. I was coveting, I was lying, I was stealing, I was cheating, I was murdering, I was blaspheming, I was all doing all sorts of things. But when God puts it down, what do I now know beyond a shadow of a doubt? See, there it is. I know that it's true. I know that I'm wrong, and I know that sin is real and that is in me. It is functioning rightly, Galatians 3. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of the mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith that which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. See, the law does its job. It reveals sin. It points to my, my lack of righteousness. It points to the righteousness of God and calls me to cry out for a redeemer. Therefore, the law is good. It accomplishes its goal. So again, you're looking at me and you're saying, but Michael, doesn't that mean as Christians we throw the law away? We don't need it anymore? No. Au contraire, mon frère. Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Question, what's a good work? See, if you tell me to love God and love my neighbor, you know what you've just quoted to me? You've quoted to me the law. Love God, love neighbor as a summation of the Ten Commandments. How do I love God? By treating him as holy. How do I treat him as holy? By not taking his name in vain. By not making a graven image. By trusting in him alone realizing there are no other gods. That's how I treat God as holy, and that's how I love God. Well, how do I love my neighbor? I don't know. I could start by not killing him, by not taking his stuff, by not sleeping with his wife. But see, that's only external. I could also not lie to him. I could bear truth. I could not desire his things. I could train my children to live well in this world. See, that's how I love my neighbor, by following those commandments. What's a good work? The commandment, the law, shows me what a good work is. This is what the Ebionite missed. The Ebionites missed the distinction between the law and the gospel. The law is not the gospel. I don't not kill my neighbor so that God will be happy with me. I don't kill my neighbor because God is happy with me. He's happy with me in Christ. Therefore, I don't have to kill him. 
I don't have to worry about him. I don't have to desire his wife or his stuff or his car or anything because God has given me provision and I love him. Why do I love him? Because he saved me and changed me and revealed to me just how evil and wretched I was. And now I'm not. See, I don't not, I don't crave it. I don't, oh, I don't stop coveting so that he will think I'm good. I stop coveting because I know God is good and that he is in me. See, this is not a gaining of salvation. It's a proof of salvation. That's what James 2 was about. What use is it, my brethren, if someone has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and one of you goes by, and, and yet you do not give what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. See, my salvation is not gained by my good works. It is not improved by my good works. It is not attained by my good works. My salvation is proven by my good works. That's how the law functions for the believer. It is good. It is right. It is holy. It is eternal. I trust in it and follow after it because God has changed me, and I am now living for that which is true, holy, right, and eternal, that which is contained in God's law. That's the difference. It doesn't save me. It proves that God has saved me. And that's the distinction we have to keep making because who is holy? God is holy. Jesus is not a man who just happened to get it right. He is God in flesh, giver, sustainer, and keeper of both the law and my life. Therefore, I follow and trust in what he has done. So what have we learned today, children? God has a law that is good. Our righteousness does not come from that law, but rather the law guides us in righteous living because that is the call of a holy and righteous God on our lives. So if you'd like some fun, dig into the Ebionites. They are yet another fun-loving, heretical crowd from the first century. And as usual, there will be a little write-up on this posted with more of the cross-references and some more scripture for you guys at the... Uh, blog page for Practical Theology Ministries at practicaltheologyministries.com. There you'll also find our newsletter, which, 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 April and May should be posted this week. I promise it's coming. We're going to get hopefully everything in this week, and you'll get a, a not quite full edition from April and a full edition of May. So it's like, it's not like a double issue, but it's like a 1.8 issue with all the good fun stuff, stuff for the kids, stuff for the adults, church history, all that good stuff will be there. You can subscribe to that newsletter to get it delivered to your inbox when it's available on the website. You can also find past issues of it there. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. You can see links to old worship services where you are welcome to worship with us at Calvary Baptist Church in Rockford, Illinois at 1030 on a Sunday morning. You can also find through the same Podbean app you're listening to this, you'll see the uh, live stream of our worship services. So you can join us live as they happen and even bug Cameron if I type messages to her that she doesn't respond to uh, on the app and doing all sorts of fun stuff. And of course, as always, if you have any questions, send them to me, info at practicaltheologyministries.com. And if I get enough of them set up, we might even just do like a whole Q&A session and have all sorts of fun with it. So there you go. Enjoy all that. And until we meet again, read your Bible. It'll do you good. God bless.